Hi there, my name is Liam West and I'm a junior doctor in the Oxfordshire Deanery and I'm part of the BGSM editorial team. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Asim Malotra, a consultant interventional cardiologist who's been central catalyst in igniting the debate around the harms of excess sugar consumption in the UK. He's achieved this in part by his commentaries in the BMJ and his regular columns that he writes for the Guardian newspaper about heart disease and other health topics. We will put a link to this in the blurb for the podcast, so don't worry about searching for them now. Significantly, he has managed to galvanise the leading academics, the media and politicians into making sugar reduction a health priority. So it seems as a keynote speaker at the upcoming low-carb, high-fat summit in Cape Town, which is happening next week, that was discussed in the podcast you heard with Professor Tim Noakes. Before we start, it is quite important to clarify that there are two distinct issues surrounding the debate of this diet. One question is whether endurance and other performance athletes actually need carbs in their diet. And uh, as BGM, BGSM, we will be covering this issue in a podcast in a few weeks, so keep your eyes peeled for that. The second debate surrounds, surrounding this diet is the public health issue between the link of carbohydrates, health and obesity, which we're going to discuss today. So to start us off, Asim, could you comment on the impact of a low-carb, high-fat diet in comparison to modern treatments for heart disease? Well, I think, first of all, Liam, we need to look at, it, look at this in the bigger picture and the, the wider um, perspective. So at the moment, we have a real problem with obesity. It's a public health crisis. We know that 60% of the UK's adult population are either overweight or obese. About one in three children are now overweight or obese by the time they leave primary school, which is very disturbing, and the trends are on the increase. And what I believe we have failed to do um, in, in, in our healthcare system and even amongst knowledge of the wider public is acknowledge the impact of diet on health and how important that is. So according to the Lancet Global Burden of Disease Reports, poor diet contributes to a more disease and physical inactivity, smoking and alcohol combined. And to answer your question specifically, and one thing I have done and looked into is what is the actual best evidence base for um, dietary interventions on reducing cardiovascular risk and, and improving cardiovascular outcomes. And that actually the best evidence base from randomized controlled trials comes from the traditional Mediterranean diet, but certainly one that is higher in fat content that is currently recommended by our uh, both US and UK dietary guidelines. So uh, one of the most impressive studies that was published relatively recently in the New England Journal of Medicine um, compared a high fat Mediterranean diet with a advice to eat a low-fat traditional Mediterranean diet and what they found was it was in, in a large group of about several thousand um, high-risk people for heart disease so diabetic patients for example um, there was a significant 30% reduction in risk of heart attack stroke or death within the space of around 4.8 years but that risk reduction happened quite quickly and in that intervention group their total calories from fat was around 41% um, and they were also specifically, it was low in sugar, it was low in refined carbohydrate. So this clearly is evidence that, you know, from a randomized controlled trial data that, you know, higher fat consumption in terms of Mediterranean diet has a big effect, specifically in terms of what foods that, that are thought to contribute to reduce that risk. Um, it was nuts, extra virgin olive oil uh, in particular. So at least four tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil per day um, and a handful of nuts, which was more uh, walnuts, almonds and hazelnuts more specifically, which people would consider to be quite a lot of fat. I mean, let's look at um, four tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil. It's probably about 500 calories. So you compare that with, say, a can of cola 
um, where you've got 90 spoons of, of sugar added sh- of sugar basically um, and we know from the epic interact study um, that was published again uh, quite recently that showed that just consumption of one of those sugary drinks per day was associated with a 22% increase in development of type 2 diabetes so this is a kind of you know the whole discussion around calories and fat etc comes into specifically where those calories come from that's what's most important it's an incredible misconception uh, I sort of wish I was taught this at medical school really yeah, well, I, me too, Liam. I mean, um, I, I don't remember having a single lecture on evidence-based nutrition. Um, and a lot of my understanding around nutrition, or certainly diet's impact on health, has only happened in the last few years. And I come from a, you know, I, I'm, I do interventional cardiology. We, we, put, we like putting stents in people. We treat people for heart disease. And, you know, it's very effective um, in terms of treatment of acute heart attacks. But again, to answer you, come back to your you know, question, to put it in perspective, when you look at modern treatments for heart disease, um, a Mediterranean diet for secondary prevention, so people have had heart attacks, is almost three times as powerful at reducing risk of death than taking a statin. So the NNT numbers needed to treat is around 30. When you look at statins for heart disease, and they have a very beneficial effect in people with established heart disease, the NNT is 83. When you look at people who don't have heart disease, primary prevention, we know that um, low-risk patients... So people have a low risk of cardiovascular disease, a 10% risk over 10 years, where there's been a lot of controversy recently about from guidance from NICE about whether we should give you know mass medicate a significant proportion of the adult population of statins. It doesn't reduce mortality. Um, it'll prevent about 1 in 140 from having a non-fatal heart attack. There's about a similar s- small increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And that's even when you don't get into the you know, whole area about side effects and you know, that interfere with the quality of life. Um, so personally, from my point of view, um, having nuts, for example, or extra virgin olive oil regularly as part of your diet every day, the NNT for that is around 61, which is much stronger. Um, than taking a statin. It doesn't mean don't take a statin, but I think people should be aware of the evidence base um, before they make informed decisions. And, and many of our listeners should be aware and they can tell their patients. Absolutely. That's it. I think we've sequestered, we've held back really important information in healthcare. Healthcare, and, and information that's there, you know, it's published randomised controlled trials. But what we as doctors tell our patients and what we're even aware of ourselves um, it has, has been limited to some degree and, and unhelpful. Uh, and therefore, you know, we've we've overtreated people. We've adopted a strategy of a pill for every ill, if you like. Uh, and medicine, of course, modern medicine has a big role to play in people's health. But I think we've we've overdone it in 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 many instances. Um, my personal view, we've done that with statins, uh, and at the same time, neglecting the impact of diet. Superb. I think, I think you, you, you've converted me. I, I'm sold. Um, so let's let's try and get to more of the people that believe in the science behind this and sometimes bring back to it. I think you very nicely covered the, the debate about, uh, around cholesterol and heart disease there. Um, you actually recently busted, as I would say, the myth of saturated fat and heart disease in a BMJ commentary that became actually one of the most read articles in, in the world in 2013, so congratulations there. Um, many of our listeners are actually general practitioners or family medicine physicians. Um, they'll be listening to listening to this in their cars or hopefully actually while doing some physical activity. Um, Can you give them some evidence behind this and and motivate them to give some tips on how to convey this to their patients? Yeah, I think the the, the top line really, um, and I'll I'll elaborate on this, is just eat whole foods, eat real food. The problem we have 
um, surrounding the whole issues of obesity and related diseases, whether it's type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, even cancer, is about the consumption of processed food. So when we look at saturated fats, what many people don't appreciate and realize is that there are many different types of saturated fatty acids. Um, there are, in fact, scores of them. And the emerging evidence, um, something I looked into first of all and then has now been backed up with further studies, is that if you have saturated fats from um, non-processed dairy, so in particular full-fat yogurt and cheese, actually there is an association with a decreased risk of heart disease and type 2 diabetes. Whereas saturated fatty acids that come from processed foods and particularly meats, for example, a lot of consumption of meat, may well be implicated in causing uh, or increasing the risk. So I think the problem we've had is that we've promoted this low fat is good for you message and that low fat is good for you message actually doesn't really have any strong evidence base behind it for two reasons. As I've alluded to before, if you have fats from things like olive oil and nuts, for example, that is going to be protective. And then within saturated fat, um, you've got different saturated fatty acids. What's happened is the food industry have exploited this low fat message and a lot of these foods that are on the you know, that people purchase that I think are healthy for them actually may have the opposite effect. So a low fat yogurt, for example, you know, it's very commonly consumed. People think it's healthy. You know, some of these products, uh, um, and we've looked at, into this with Action on Sugar, um, have you know five, six, seven teaspoons of, of sugar in them. And again, how much sugar we should we consume? Well, the World Health Organization has now recommended limits for the average adult per day of six teaspoons per day you know so some of these products already go over your limit and for the average four to eight year old child and a lot of parents will be listening to this u.s dietary guidelines suggest they should have no more than three teaspoons per day of added sugar you know so we're consuming we know that um you know uh, sort of uh, dietary survey data here in the uk uh, and it's probably an underestimate because people don't necessarily report correctly how much they're eating um suggests that we're having at least two to three times the average Brit is consuming at least two to three times the amount of added sugar that is recommended from the World Health Organization. Some incredible stats there. Um, I think the message really there is, and we can get our tweeters to get this the message across with the hashtag, don't fear the fat, um, is we should be a little bit more welcome to that. I th- I th- you've, you've touched on cholesterol, you've touched on fat, you've just started to touch on sugar there. You recently posted a very good piece stating that sugar is now the enemy number one in the western diet um can you take our listeners through that and and why you think we should raise the public awareness and and maybe even enforce more regulation on the food manufacturers sure so i think the key the key uh point here from a scientific point of view the the issues around um what we call uh non-milk extrinsic sugars and simply that means added sugars anything added to food but also includes things like fruit juice honey and syrups and that's where the problem lies. So this, these added sugars, um, refined sugars, if you like, um, first of all, have absolutely no nutritional value. In addition to that, the body doesn't require any carbohydrate from added sugars for energy. Therefore, you've got something, a food substance, if you like, um, which doesn't add any value really to your body and it doesn't do anything uh, positive for you. That's the first thing to say. Then you add in, then you come to, well, what are the adverse consequences of it? Well, we know that, you know, consumption um, of just one sugary drink per day obviously is associated with increasing risk of type 2 diabetes. But one of the most interesting studies that was published out of Stanford um, in early 2013 
um, by a chap called Sanjay Basu and Robert Lustig, who you're probably aware of, pediatric endocrinologist in San Francisco, also was a co-author on this. Um, it was a very large study which looked at sugar consumption and availability worldwide. And what they found was for every 100 extra 150 calories one consumed above their normal quota of sugar per day, so typical of a can of cola, versus calories from another source, i.e. fat and protein, there was an 11-fold increase in the prevalence of type 2 diabetes, independent of body weight, independent of physical activity. So that actually also comes onto another aspect of all of this, is that actually, you know, it, even if you're of normal weight, sugar will cause you potential harm if you consume it in excess. And also even if you exercise, and I can even bring in a personal story into that, is that I was somebody, and I've always been very active. I've been an active sportsman. I captained sports teams at school and university. I go to the gym every day, you know, for health benefit reasons, not for obesity. And I'll come on to that in a second. Uh, and I thought that having a, you know, a bottle of Lucozade was good. It would give me energy. It was something I needed. It was, it was positive. I started looking at the data. I thought, my God, you know, there's actually quite a lot of sugar in Lucozade. Um, and then the BMJ actually did an investigation where they, they actually busted a myth and said that actually these, these drinks don't uh, enhance performance and you don't need them for extra hydration. Certainly for most people, there may be an argument for elite athletes taking these drinks, although Tim Noakes can probably elaborate on that more. Um, and I stopped drinking Lucozade, but I, I calculated that over a period of around 10 years, I probably spe- spent close to about £7,000 um, just on buying these drinks because I thought they were good for my exercise performance. Stopped drinking them, didn't change my performance in any way. You know, I could still run 5K in the same amount of time, just drank water instead. So um, I think, you know, even from a personal perspective, um, I've gone through that. Yeah. So let's put it in a box. Sugar is bad, sugar is expensive, but it may take a little bit of time before we can get our patients to actually change their diet if they want to. Um, In the meantime, can exercise, has it been shown that it can mitigate against the harms of sugar? Um, Is there anything there? Well, it's 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 a very good question you ask, Liam. I don't, it's difficult for, um, you know, a lot of these different things that we do that are positive for our health have benefits and no one can deny actually even just doing a 20 minute brisk walk has tremendous tremendous benefits for your health um but actually no i don't think um exercise um mitigates if you like from the harms of sugar in the same way um i don't think exercise would you know it would mitigate the harms of smoking a cigarette you know one cigarette won't kill you a teaspoon of sugar won't kill you but over time these these um these products have a very adverse effect on your body so you know it, there's one mantra which i which i actually i think is a very str- gives a very strong message to people that we haven't acknowledged enough is that food can be the most powerful form of medicine or the slowest form of poison and added sugar is one of those poisons that's a great mantra okay i think we'll, we'll leave that there and then i think we just end by discussing just why is there such an apparent conflict between dietitians and clinicians about this diet surely it's it's only serving to confuse the public and and what choice of diet to follow making it harder for them to sort of choose that and do you think we should maybe have a standardized model of nutrition taught across all specialities yeah i think so i mean i can't really speak that much for the dietitians but my understanding is is that um from dietitians point of view they're there to they 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 have a very sim well it can be argued as a very simplistic way of looking at um, what people eat based upon the amount of calories they should consume and then you compartmentalize it to how much fat and saturated fat and carbohydrate, etc. And I think that's been unhelpful because I personally think it's naive for anyone to think that a calorie of bread, a calorie of alcohol, a calorie of sugar 
you know, a calorie of omega-3, a calorie of fiber has the same effect on the body. They don't. They have different effects. And, and, and our calorie as a calorie model has been overly simplified um, to the point where a lot of people will buy food products based upon their calorie content, not the quality of those calories. I think that's what we need to do is concentrate on good nutrition and stop counting calories. And I think that certainly dietitians, many dietitians, not, not all of them, I think, you know, I think they, they by and large do a tremendous job. I think that they look purely at the point of view of what people should be eating, whereas clinicians are looking at evidence-based and impacts on health. And that's where I come from. I come from the point of view is what are the best foods to eat based upon evidence in terms of reducing risk of heart attack, stroke, cancer, type 2 diabetes, all these aspects of health. And yes, I agree. I think we need to have a proper debate and an open and transparent one um, and, and one that has been free of in industry influence. I think only um, yesterday a BMJ investigation which hit the news uncovered that mem many members of the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition had, con had received considerable research funding from the food and the sugar industry in the you know, up to millions of pounds. And for anyone to think that that were anyone to think that that won't bias their view in any way, I think is naive. You know, and I think the public deserve to know that people that are advising them on what to eat. Um, are receiving research funding from the companies that want to sell them products, many of which are harming their health. I think that that debate needs to be had. Uh, I don't think any of these scientists have knowingly or individually done anything deliberately wrong, but I think that uh, that has introduced a bias, whether it's unwitting or not, into uh, the decisions they make. Thank you very much, Theracene. Thanks, Liam. It's been a pleasure. I think I learned quite a lot, and I think hopefully our listeners will too. The conference that we mentioned at the start is the low-carb, high-fat diet that's going on in Cape Town next week, the 19th to the 22nd. How can you follow the conference? Well, first of all, you can follow on Twitter. Follow the BGSM handle on at BGSM underscore BMJ or follow Asim on at Dr. Asim Malotra during the event. Follow the hashtag, hashtag LCHF. There'll be blogs posted each day and then we'll be doing subsequent podcasts with other keynote speakers. So thank you very much for listening. Have a physically active day and don't fear the fat. <laughs>